Driver salaries are interesting, right? For somebody who's like, I want to race a NASCAR, like what, how does that happen? How much does a race weekend cost? Uh, are there physical conditioning programs that the drivers are you know, required to do, or is it that mostly set on your own? Have there been teams in NASCAR caught cheating? Or oh, all the time, what, all what, the time. What is your biggest achievement in your NASCAR career thus far? I do know you have a crazy sneaker collection and might love sneakers more than you love cars. I don't know, you tell me. Eat Sleep Race podcast, Brian ESR, Hugo ESR, and our special guest today, 24-year-old NASCAR driver, Joe Graff Jr., based from New Jersey, right? Actually, grown, born and raised in Jersey, right? Born and raised in Jersey. I grew up right in Mawa, so super happy to be back in Jersey for this. That's what's up. Actually, I got to ask, are there any other NASCAR drivers in the history from Jersey? Yeah, so there is. So Martin Truex is from Jersey. Um, I think there's another one or two, but I'm, I'm, not, uh, I'm not 100% sure. But he's, not too he's many NASCAR drivers from the Northeast, huh? No, there's, there's not a ton of them. I mean... A lot of them from North Carolina, a lot of them from California too, um, Southeast, but I think, uh, I think there's only been a few from Jersey. So that actually uh, segues into our first question. Are you the first racer driver in your family? So I am not the first racer in my family. I'm the first NASCAR driver in my family, but my, uh, my dad raced locally growing up so i always grew up going to the racetrack going to short tracks bethel motor speedway here in uh new york it's about an hour from where i lived in mala um and then my uncle raced as well what type of racing did you guys uh was your dad doing so mostly short tracks like bethel motor speedway was a quarter mile so he started in a street stock i remember uh him and my grandfather building the street stock at my garage growing up or uh so I'd, I'd always go out there as a kid and try to help him out. I'm sure I wasn't much of a help, but it was, uh, it was fun. Like how many people are in a race? So in a NASCAR race, there's 38 in the Xfinity Series and then 40 in the Cup Series. How about when you were starting out at Bethel? Ooh, so that depends on the week. It depends how many showed up. So I think the maximum they would start is 25. But, I mean, there were some weeks where when we were first getting started, um, there'd only be five or six of us. Down in... North Carolina, I guess, where most of these racers come from, that type of racing, are there way more racers down there for that type of racing? Yeah, there's, there's definitely a lot of racers down there. And a lot of the big races are in North Carolina. Like when I got a little bit older, um, like 12 to 15, I started traveling to North Carolina a lot to race with those guys down there. We'd, uh, we'd go out to Texas. We'd have a week in Florida where we'd race Bandoleros and Legend cars down there. So um got to travel around a little bit doing that and um suddenly all the family vacations were built around the racetrack now when you guys race um i know there's a lot of different surfaces you guys race on right like what was your favorite i know there's like dirt there's asphalt so i grew up racing asphalt short tracks um that's what what i've what i was accustomed to um grassroots racer and then once i got into nascar we have a couple dirt races a year as you guys know we have a lot of road courses now as well so I wasn't really um, accustomed to doing either of them. My first, uh, my first dirt race was in the ARCA series uh, back in 2018. So that was, a, that was a learning experience for me for sure, but it was a lot of fun. It uh, led to a little bit of dirt modified racing as well. Um, got to run with Kenny Schrader down at Volusia. Um, ran with him at the coin as well. That was, that, that was a really fun time. And then road courses, my, uh, my first road course in anything except like go-karts at the mall <laughs> was actually Indianapolis in an Xfinity car in 2020. So you spoke about 
following or you know going with your dad to the track then finally getting in the car yourself how many years have you been racing you know in total so i'm 24 i've been racing for about 14 or 15 years i got into it when i was just turning 10. so um it's been a little while i've been racing longer than uh i haven't been so for you to come up the ranks from just you know grassroots racer all the way to you know, now professional NASCAR driver, was there any formal training? Did you go to school for this? Did your dad teach you? Like, how, how did you raise the ranks? So growing up, it was really just a Saturday night hobby. I, I, I always loved it. I was pretty good at it. We, uh, we traveled the country, won a lot of races. Um, but I never really thought it could take us to this level. Um, I, uh, it wasn't until I was 17, I decided like, I really wanted to try to make a career out of this. I went to my parents and told them that, and, uh, they weren't entirely on board. They wanted me to go to college. They wanted me to kind of go that route and have racing be a Saturday night hobby. Um, and I can't say that I necessarily blame them. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot that goes into this and, um, there's a lot of unknowns. So that's the, their option is definitely the safer bet, but, um, I ended up trying to prove to them that I could do both, go to college and race. I took, uh, I took college classes at Harvard my senior year of high school just to show that like I could race and go to school as well and um, ended up doing well there. So they, they let me do it, but it was, uh, it was a little bit of a sales pitch. Now, when, when uh, Brian was asking, you know, you, you did all these different types of racing, I know on drag racing side, you know, people have to like, uh, in order for you to run to certain times, you have to get licensing. Is there any type of licensing that you need for like what you do? Yeah, ab absolutely. So you need a NASCAR license. There's an approval process that you have to go through. They have to approve you for different tracks and things like that. Um, like I, uh, to get approved for Xfinity, I had to run ARCA in 2018 and 19. I went there, I, I raced at Daytona, raced Talladega. I raced a lot of the big tracks and that was uh, what actually approved me for making my first Xfinity starts. And uh, now at this point, obviously, I'm I'm approved for everything, but there's definitely an approval process to be able to get a NASCAR license and really compete at this level. So that so there was a reason why, like when you first started, like I think when we first met you, you were in the ARCA series. Mm -hmm. So actually, for those listening unfamiliar with NASCAR, because this was me a couple years ago, because I knew nothing about NASCAR, we linked up with Joe. NASCAR. I thought was Jeff Gordon, Dale Earnhardt, you know, that's, that was the NASCAR that I was aware of, but come to find out there's several levels, would you say, or series, different series, I think, right, right, different series of NASCAR. And, you know, it starts, I guess your top tier is cup, mm -hmm. second tier Xfinity, third tier truck, yep. and fourth tier ARCA. Yes. And you got your start in ARCA. Do you necessarily have to race, like, do you have to start at ARCA to get to Cup, or are there people who just jump to Cup? Like, how does that work? So there's a lot of different paths. It's, uh, it's extraordinarily difficult just to jump to Cup. Everybody that I've seen go to Cup without doing that either came from, like, IndyCar or Formula One, things like that, other racing series of a similar level. Um, but... Um, somebody can't just go from like being a local short track racer to, Hey, I want to drive a cup car. That's, that's not how it Even works. Even if they had all the money in the world. Even if you had all the money in the really? world, you have to go through 
some of the other series to get approved, show that you can do it, and show that you're not in danger on the racetrack as well. Because, mm. like you were saying, there's 38 people on a track. <clears throat> absolutely, right? absolutely. I mean, I don't uh, – we still have – our fair share of wrecks and crashes in NASCAR. I, uh, I certainly wouldn't want to be rubbing doors with people who don't know what they're doing. Right. Now, also, when, when it comes to the, the racing, I know back in the day I used to, I used to love the trucks. It, are, is the truck still a thing right now? Yeah, or? so the, the truck series races 22 races a year. Um, series is doing great. They've got tremendous talent in there, and uh, it's, uh, it's really thriving. And how many races is Xfinity? So Xfinity's 33 races a year, and then Cup is 36. So right now, um, in the series that you're racing in, how many races is there for, for the season? 36, right? No, so there's 33 Xfinity races. So I race 33 times a year if I don't race a truck or a Cup car, which sometimes you can be part-time in the truck series or the Cup series being full-time in Xfinity as well. Wow. And, and, and even if you are racing a truck, that's in the same weekend? So a lot of times it is. So they have... Uh, like for Daytona to start the year, they'll have the truck race on Friday, the Xfinity race Saturday, and the cup race Sunday for the Daytona 500. Um, but there's also some standalone Xfinity races, some okay. standalone truck races. Um, so they kind of split it up sometimes, but most of our races in Xfinity are companion races to the cup series. That's awesome. So you just went through a race weekend in general, like when all the races are together. So it would be Cup on Sunday, Xfinity Saturday, Truck also Saturday? Truck's usually Friday. So it's like a Friday night race, and then we have Xfinity Saturday, Cup Sunday is typically how a NASCAR weekend looks. ARCA Thursday? So ARCA um, ARCA's a little bit different. So sometimes ARCA is the same day as Xfinity. Sometimes they'll have it on Saturday. But ARCA has a lot more standalone races than Trucks and Xfinity have. So I think ARCA only has, they race 20 races a year. I think they only have seven or eight where it's a companion race to the NASCAR Cup Series. Would you say ARCA would be like minor league, kind of like minor league baseball? Yeah, that's that's probably a really good way of looking at it. And then your major league would be your Cup Xfinity? Yeah, yeah, Cup Xfinity, yeah. Got it. So you you got your start in ARCA. And like, so what got you from you know local grassroots driver into arca like what is that process like for somebody who's like i want to race an NASCAR, like what how does that happen so it takes a lot of work i mean i was uh i was driving all over the country i was racing late models at the time and i was racing modifieds at stafford different things like that and i uh <clears throat> i got an opportunity with chad bryant racing to make six starts in 2018 um and that was really my opportunity. I took a gap year between high school and college to try to make this racing thing work. And uh, I was able to get an opportunity there. And I actually broke my foot six days before my first ARCA start, which was at Nashville in 2018. Um, I, I opted to not get a cast put on it. We taped the bone in place. Uh, a doctor taped the bone in place. Um, and we went and uh, raced Nashville. We ended up doing really well. We led laps. We... Uh, Ran really good all day. Um, unfortunately, we had a transmission go bad towards the end of the race, but really kind of made some noise, put me on the map a little bit. But I think the race that really did it for me in the ARCA series was Talladega in 2018. It was the first race 
that I wasn't supposed to run. Um, I only had six races. They ran 20 ARCA series races. Um, and the driver who was supposed to run it backed out on, uh, on Tuesday morning before the race. And I'm about to get on a plane to fly back up to Jersey to get a cast put on my foot. Um, and I get a call from the team owner, Chad. He's like, hey, we, uh, we actually have an opening for Talladega this week. Is it something you want to do? And I'm like, absolutely. Um, so at the time, the biggest racetrack I'd ever been on was a mile, and Talladega is 2.6. So um, I, I watched as much film as I could. I, I did some, some eye racing and stuff to try to get ready for it. Um, but I was pretty nervous going there, I'll be honest with you. But we went there. We ended up running second in a pretty wild race. It was the closest finish in ARCA history. Um, I'm pretty sure it still is to this day. Um, I'm pretty sure it's the closest in Talladega history, too. I'll have to double-check that, but I'm pretty certain. Um, and that was really, like, the big, uh, my big moment. I was uh, on a race-by-race -race basis after that. Um, the team kept me in the car. I ended up running uh, all but one race that year. I didn't run the first race at Daytona, but went on to win at Berlin. Um, had a lot of really good runs that year. So when you say Chad Bryant Racing asked you to race, does that mean were you getting paid at that point? So like, what does that mean? Driver salaries are interesting, right? So um, just in NASCAR in general, right? So there isn't a uh, like the NFL, the MLB, different things like that. They have a minimum salary, right? So if you get in, you're making X amount of money at, at a minimum. NASCAR really isn't that way, and most motorsports aren't. Um, like, you have some of the drivers in NASCAR who are obviously making millions and millions of dollars, and then there's uh, some that really aren't making very much. Um, so, like, I've had, I've had some decent years in NASCAR, and I've had some tough ones as well as far as the, as far as the pay goes. So um, I'm not going to say exactly what I was making at the time, but it wasn't very much. So... For an aspiring driver out there, grassroots driver, it's like, uh, you just killed my dream right there. That means, so if I drive for a team, that means I can't get paid? Well, it doesn't mean you can't get paid. It, it, it all depends on the situation you're in and uh, the sponsorship you have and the type of team you're racing for. And there's a lot of uh, different ways that contracts are, are written with drivers and things. So there's a lot of variables that go into it. So that's not necessarily true, but... There definitely are drivers out there that aren't racing for anything. And do you think, like, um, with the drivers that are making, do you, th like, even for you, if someone offered you, like, a seat in a car for a whole season and said, hey, I don't have money to pay you, but you get to drive my car, is that something that people consider? Oh, absolutely. I mean, this was, uh, this is my dream, right? This is what I love to do. I love going to the racetrack. So, I mean, there's been opportunities where I feel like, we could run better and um, the money might not necessarily be there and you kind of have to make a stretch to make it happen. But like, ultimately I'm, I'm a racer at heart. I want to run as good as I can. And uh, that's what I do. So that's a good topic. You know, some racers don't get paid. Some racers actually lose money because they pay to be able to get a seat in a car from what I've learned. So that, that does happen as well. There's a, uh, there's a lot of drivers who, take a chance and either take out a loan or use family money to try to get an opportunity in the sport. And then they're actually spending money to be there. Um, and it makes it, it makes it really interesting because like on one hand, there's drivers making millions of dollars a year. And then on another, there's some of them that are paying to be there. Cause ultimately if you have the dream to race, you know, Daytona or Talladega, that could technically, 
you could buy your way into that dream. You could fund it yourself, essentially. So there are drivers who try to do that, absolutely. And it works out for some, it doesn't for others. At the end of the day, it all kind of has to come together. The funding has to come together, the sponsorship has to come together, and then the driving ability and talent has to come together, right? I've seen a lot of uh, a lot of teams come in or drivers come in that just didn't really have it and it doesn't work out. Um, or you also at most of these places, like Daytona, for instance, they send cars home who don't qualify. So there's 38 spots, but at Daytona, sometimes 45 cars show up. So oh, wow. Seven people will go to the race and not race. And not race, yeah. All right, let's give some keys to success here. If anyone's, you know, grassroots driver, you got the dream. You want to race at Daytona. You want to race at Talladega. First, you need some skill, right? Because you can technically buy a seat to race at one of those tracks during one of the big races because some teams do have extra cars that could potentially race as long as there's a sponsor as long as there's money to put that car on track, right? But technically, that team won't let you get behind the wheel if you're not a qualified, qualified driver. driver, right? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of really good drivers, and there's a lot of... Uh, I mean, NASCAR in and of itself is a tremendous platform for businesses and sponsors. So there is a lot of sponsorship money out there. So there are drivers who have the funding, but don't have the ability or don't have the experience that a lot of teams still will, will not take. So there's still a lot of politics and, you know, also like kind of like all your stars have to line up for you to get that opportunity. All the stars have to line up for yeah. sure. But it's one just, of the, it's not just about the money. It's like, not just about the money. I mean, I've, I personally think it's more about talent than money. Um, I think there are a lot of drivers who do not have the funding, but have the talent that make it. And I have yet to see somebody who doesn't have the talent, but has the money make it. Yeah. On that topic, how much does a race weekend cost? Of course, now we're talking different levels. You got Cup, you got Xfinity, you got Well, in the current truck, series Arca. that you're racing. So we'll talk Xfinity. How much does a race weekend cost? So it really depends, right? So there's kind of like tiers to NASCAR. There's top teams who have a much bigger budget than the mid-pack teams or the low-budget teams, as we call them. Um, so it really depends right so how much does the number one team in xfinity if you had to put number on it how much do they spend on a weekend spend in a weekend it easily six figures are we talking nine hundred thousand? lower lower six figures lower six figures once you get to the cup series it it does get to the mid to high six figures but in xfinity it's typically low six figures so top five team in xfinity you're saying maybe $200,000 per weekend? Um, it's still a little bit high, but yeah, yeah, somewhere around there. Now, now, when we're saying this weekend, like let's just say you, know, you go out for qualifying and you hurt your motor or something like that happens. Well, before we even get into that, let's, let's step back a little bit. He just said it costs one to two hundred to three hundred thousand dollars to race in a Which weekend. Which is why I'm asking. Like, Us being from drag the, racing. Yeah, that's... Our, our friends who race, you know, different, uh, again, I guess different levels. Right? Yeah, like yeah. Our friends race grassroots level. When uh, you were talking like, yo, I just spent five grand this weekend. Like, damn. Yeah. Well, oh, I just blew a motor. We spent 20, 15, 20 grand. Meanwhile, you're talking, these guys race 33 times a year, spending a hundred, two hundred thousand dollars a weekend. That's a lot. I mean, Hey, yo, that's, you know, a couple million dollars to get a team out. Well, not only that. So racing at this level is expensive, but 
from what I've heard, drag racing is not all that much different. I know at the grassroots level, it's less expensive, but yeah, NHRA, yeah. I mean, NHRA, their their budgets like they're rebuilding a motor after every run in some cases. So I mean, I'm I don't know I the exact I don't know the exact figures over there, but I know it gets very high as well. Hugo, Hugo which is was why, actually like, wondering about that. That's about why, the motors. Like, you know, just just knowing that you know a motor can let go right I, I know you guys don't really get into too in depth with the motors but if a motor was to let go is that something that you guys rebuild or you know like what how, how does that ha- how does that happen yeah what, what, happens, what happens if you blow instance? a motor so in most well, cases let me, stop. let me reiterate that what happens when you blow a motor during race weekend how much does that cost you so in most cases uh NASCAR teams will get what's called a motor program. So they essentially lease a motor for the weekend from either Roush, Roush Yates, um, TRD, ECR engines, Hendrick motors, like that, that type of deal. And when they do that, they have a fixed price for the weekend uh, or for the season. And that includes everything. So if something malfunctions with the motor, if it blows up, if something happens during your race weekend, They'll put a backup motor in it. It doesn't cost any more. Um, but that's typically like when the motor shops do their um, accounting and budgeting for the year and figuring out what they're going to charge teams that they account for here and there, you're going to have something blow up. Failures and stuff. Yeah. Now, when you say like you know, like this motor lease program, like when you show up, typically when you show up to the race for the weekend, is there a motor in that car or is it something that gets put in? So it typically gets dropped off at the race shop the week before the race, um, sometimes two weeks before the race. And then our team will put the motor in the car. The motors are sealed, so you can't go in them. You can't change anything really or look in them. Um, so that's typically how the lease program works. And then uh, there, are, there is an option to buy motors as well, but they're not as good as the lease program. So lease motors, we call having an A motor program. And then if you buy them, it's called, it's, it's a, it's a B motor program. It's not as good. It's cheaper, but they don't make as much horsepower. They don't have the same torque, et cetera, et cetera. So, so when you say like top tier teams, are the motors setups different between like a top 10, like, you know, top 10 car versus, you know, middle of the pack car? Oh yeah. I mean the top tier cars, the mid pack cars, the low tier, uh, the lower teams, there's a, t- a ton of difference. There's um, the, all of the top teams, they have a ton of engineering, they have a ton of engineers, they have a lot of people working on how can we make this car as fast as possible, where a lot of the mid-tier teams and the bottom-tier teams, they're just trying to get to the car of the racetrack every week, right? So they're still doing the best that they can with the resources that they have, but um, like once you get to the bottom-tier cars, like they're really just trying to get the car to the racetrack and keep it going. I mean, we have a really strenuous schedule and when you only have three or four guys in the shop, it, uh, it can get really tough. And then some of the bigger teams, they have hundreds of guys. So you're saying the top tier teams, are their motors any different than the lower tier team? So it, the top tier teams always have a lease motor program. The bottom tier teams typically do not. So um, the motor program is different. Yeah. So the motor would make actually more power, more torque. Oh yeah, I, absolutely. I mean, I've run I've run B motors a lot. I've run A motors a lot. And there is a massive difference. Wow. When you said they send you sealed motors, they only send you one, but you did mention if you blow a motor, you'll have another one for that race. Like who comes with the backups? Like, so typically, um, there will be one on the hauler. So we'll, we'll have an extra motor, but 
like on the on the team I'm on right now, there's three cars with RSS. So when we have a lease motor program, there's typically a backup motor, but there's usually only one. Like it's not my backup motor. It's not Ryan's backup motor. It's just the backup motor. Exactly, exactly. So, and if for some reason um, there were to be two motor failures that weekend, um, Roush Yates has other backup motors at the track or other teams that have motors that they can Because the motors are technically the same. Yeah, they're technically the same, and Roush Yates owns all of them. It, they're just leasing it to us for the weekend. And then, so, but your team can change the motors. Not like Roush Yates has to be the guy. Like their guys have to change their own, like the motors, right? So it's kind of a collaborative effort. Um, okay. If so, if something happens at the racetrack, Roush Yates has guys there that will come help us. They have oh, a, wow, they have okay. a motor tuner as well. Um, so it's kind of a collaborative effort there um and usually when something like that happens at the track you'll see a lot of guys running around because we have a very short window to change this motor in before we have to go race and and if a if if a motor does happen to let go during a race you're pretty much out of the race you're done right? yeah, yeah you're like, done nascar used to let you change them in the garage and I, I remember watching as a kid you'd see some of these guys come back out 30 40 laps down and be able to go pick up some spots but um nascar doesn't doesn't let you do that anymore okay so typically, it sounds like you don't blow motors often when it comes to races. No, I mean these Roush Yates engines, TRD, all all of the motors that we get, they they put a lot of time in, a lot of effort, and there's very few mechanical failures or motor failures or things like that um, at at this level. It does happen though. I mean, when you're trying to get everything you possibly can out of a motor, you're pushing it to the limit, right? So. Sometimes things do happen, but it's it's pretty rare. And are your cars fuel injected now, or are they still carbureted? So the Xfinity series is the last NASCAR series where we are still carbureted. Oh, the, wow. the Cup series is fuel injected, and so is the Truck series. Okay. So being that it, being that it is carbureted, are are there? I guess you don't tune your own car, right? Like the the motor program tunes them right so well like not rotor programming like roush yates or whoever your suppliers tuning the yeah so roush yates helps and then we have a motor tuner as well at oh, the track. Okay. Yeah. yeah so there is stuff that you could still yeah there's there's a lot of stuff that you can still do as a team and you can work on and you can uh you can build and help with these cars and that's why so many of the bigger teams they just have more people not necessarily at the track but in r&d they have in, more resources exactly okay. exactly how many tires do you go through in a weekend, and what's the cost on that? So it depends on the race, um, because we're given a tire allotment every week. So um, if the track's super abrasive, sometimes we'll be given a higher tire allotment than um, if it's not as abrasive. Like going to Darlington, I think it's our highest tire allotment. I think we have eight or nine there. Um, eight or nine sets. Eight or nine sets of tires, yeah. So four tires to a set, and we have eight or nine sets going there that weekend. So, but when you say allotment, is that like a, is it a regulated or? Yeah, so you're only allowed to buy a certain amount of tires. Cause oh, wow. basically like at Darlington or Richmond or a lot of these tracks that have really big tire fall off, you could, um, over the course of a run, you're gonna lose three seconds in tire fall off. So if you have an extra set of tires compared to the car next to you, you're gonna beat them every time. So they, they set an allotment to how many tires, you, each team is allowed to have and then they kind of build a strategy of when you're going to use those tires uh, every team has to buy these tires yeah yeah so so every team has to buy the tires um they're a little over two thousand dollars a set and uh that's a set standard so like 
if me and you are on opposite teams, like I can't get a better tire than you, right? No, no. All but just one so tire. Good, Goodyear supplies all the tires. They're all the same. Um, they've done a really good job of developing really good tires for our series that race really well. So um, they're all pretty much the same for the most part. And uh, each team's only allowed to get a certain amount of them each weekend. Wow, interesting. Sounds like Goodyear makes a whole lot of money because they're guaranteed to sell, oh, yeah. you know, eight sets of tires per car. So 38 cars, 40 cars, 45 per, cars weekend, per weekend. Per, and that's one series. Good job, Goodyear. Good yeah, I, I, I think they're <laughs> definitely doing a really good job. But I would hate to know how much they spend on R&D developing these tires and everything else because these uh, the tires that we r race on a race weekend, in most cases, they're specific to NASCAR. So um, I don't know what, go, what, what all goes into developing a tire that can go 200 miles an hour for would as long you as see, I see? I mean, have you noticed or do you know, do, do the tires actually change like every year? Like, are there a, a... So they have different codes on the tires. Sometimes they'll have harder tires or softer tires, depending on uh, the track we're going to, or depending on how the track raced last year. If they felt like they needed to make an improvement on the tire to make the racing better. Um, sometimes they'll make tires softer, um, make them harder, and they'll change the codes on them and make new tires for the race that year. So it sounds like it's Goodyear's job to provide the best tire for every track, since every track is kind of different. Absolutely. I mean, there's a lot that goes into racing in general, but the most important thing is the four parts of the car that touch the racetrack, right? So the tires. So if, uh, if you're seeing a really good racing product out there and there's really good racing, in most cases, that's due to a really good tire. And I've been in the pits, like I see they've got, there's somebody on each pit crew team. And what I've noticed is like, there's one or two guys, like after every tire change, like all they do is measure tire. Like I don't even really like they scrape them. They measure them. They got oh, yeah. all different you're, tools. You're checking the wears on the tires. So you're seeing how much they wore over a run. Um, you're checking the the air pressure in them, a bunch of different things, just to get more of a data point as to what your car is doing, how it's handling. And then they can add that to the feedback that I give as a driver to make better adjustments throughout the race. So literally after every tire change, those guys are, you know, they're doing their thing. Data. And then they're reporting that back to the yeah so they they report they that info to so they give that info to the crew chief who then can communicate it with me and let me know if the tires look good if, or if there's an issue if you um will sometimes cord tires so he'll let me know if if uh if that happens because if you start cording tires you really have to um if you're cording a right front you have to be a little bit easier on the right front because as you cord a tire if you keep going you're, you're gonna ultimately going to get a flat tire yeah my so. wife just blew out her tire last week from cording it, so. Oh, my God. So <laughs> I don't want to ask how that happened on a streetcar, but. Um, yeah, extremely cambered. Yeah. She had no idea it was bald, and I got the call. She's like, uh, I just blew out a tire on 287. I was like, what? Like, what possibly could have happened? And when I got there and we popped it off, I was like, man, you drove this thing down to the metal. <laughs> yeah, and that's she why that tire. Like, well, you don't want to set it up. And meanwhile, Joe's like, yeah, I do that every weekend. Eight sets of tires. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's a lot Living of fun. Living on it's edge. A lot of fun. Could but potentially end up in the wall going 200 miles an hour. Burning rubber. That ever happened to you? You blew out a tire during a race? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I have a... <clears throat> so, we've cut tires. I think I cut 
two tires this year alone. Did it mess you up? Like, oh yeah. So we. Uh, He's like, oh yeah, totally slammed into ten cars. Uh, no, no, <laughs> it, it wasn't that bad. But at Richmond, we uh, we cut a left front tire on lap four. Had oh, to pit that a, sucks. Had to pit under green. Lost three laps. And, lap four. Oh yeah. Uh, so. What happened there Who's is the blame uh, on that. So we were we were racing three wide, and uh, I guess somebody drove into the side of me and got the tire. Uh, so it it was a racing deal. It wasn't like a tire failure. Yeah. Um, it was it's an accident. Yeah, it was an accident. <laughs> um, an unfortunate one on lap four because we were super fast. Ended up. Uh, we were really fast all day, but could just never get the laps back. So it was, uh, it was a really tough day for us. So you actually mentioned your, um, you know, your achievement at Talladega with the ARCA finish. What is that again? The, the cl- closest finish in ARCA history. Okay. So it, would that be you know, your greatest achievement in your NASCAR racing career thus, thus far? Um, so I think it's the biggest stat. Okay. But I don't think it's my biggest achievement. What is your biggest achievement in your NASCAR career thus far? Thus far? I mean, that's tough. It really... uh, Pick one. Only one. Only one. Only one. I don't know. I don't know. Well, what's your... um, All right, fine. Two. (laughs) So my best finish in the NASCAR Xfinity Series actually came earlier this year at Daytona. We ended up running seventh. Okay. Um, so we had a really good day at Daytona earlier this year, and then uh, in, in the ARCA series back in 2018, we, we won at Berlin. So do you, what between those two, I mean, what felt better? A number seven I'd, in Xfinity? I'd, I think winning always feels better. It doesn't matter the level. So is that the greatest achievement? So? I think so. I think so. That's cool. That's cool. I mean, out of all ARCA drivers, are there racers who have – there's probably a bunch who've just never won. Oh right? yeah, I mean, there's a ton of racers at every level who have never won. Um, Shout out to you. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Yeah, I mean, like, do you think, being that there are so many drivers, so many racers on the on the track at one time, um, you know, and obviously it takes time, it takes experience for you guys to to get that, um, just to get the experience under your belt. What's like typically like the amount of time it takes for someone to like. Um, to start seeing those wins, start placing like top 10 and moving up. So it all has to come together, right? You have to have a team that's capable of doing it. So you have to be able to get to a top team. And then as a driver, you have to uh, develop your racecraft enough that you can go out there and get it done. So it's all really, it, it all really has to come together. It has to click with you as a driver and you have to have a team that's capable of going out there and winning. So um, a, a saying I've heard a lot is you can't drive a slow car fast. Um, so you have to have a really good team behind you and you have to have a really good situation. But then once you have that, you have to go get it done as a driver. I'm curious your take on it then. A driver who's racing bottom tier, why do you think they race bottom tier? Is, it, is everyone's goal to race so that they could get top tier? Yeah, we, we all go to the racetrack every week building towards the opportunity to win, right? So... Because um, it's like if you're bottom tier, you know you're not – your chances of winning are slim to none. Yeah, exactly. So that was one thing I really had to learn when I got to the Xfinity Series because it was one of the first times in my career that I was going to the racetrack without a shot to win, um, or at, without a realistic shot to win. Because you knew you were getting into a bottom tier car. Yeah. Um, so there was a couple years of that, and it it was still – you're still racing, right? So – 
you're racing other guys in your same level of equipment, right? So it doesn't matter if you're racing for first or you're racing for 31st. The racing's hard. There's a lot of really good, talented guys out there that you're going to be racing. Um, so I feel like it helps to develop your racecraft and you learn. And uh, But ultimately, the goal is to be able to get into the equipment that can win. So was that your goal? I mean, I'm asking you firsthand at this point. So you, you came in as a bottom tier you came into a bottom tier car knowing that you still did it, you know, you committed to it. Were you doing that because the end goal is I got to be the best I can be in this bottom tier car because, you know, I'm racing towards one of the top tier teams hiring me. So at the time that was the sponsorship that we had available. Um, and, and that was what we can do. And we were just starting our marketing agency, FGR Excel. So we went to, SS Greenlight, which was a mid-tier team, um, weren't, we, we weren't really capable of winning, but we were capable of running mid-pack. And uh, we used that platform to build our marketing agency, um, figure out what worked and didn't work for sponsors. We proved the concept. And then we've continuously built on that the last couple of years to be able to continue to raise more sponsorship. And... Uh, I was also able to work on my skills and get better as a driver. And uh, it's all kind of started to come together on that side of it. So that goes together with the you know, idea of sponsorship because, okay, you're a bottom tier driver. You have you know, experience and talent to get into a top tier car, but it costs money to get into the, those seats, right? Into those cars. You need sponsors to make that happen. So how, how important is sponsorship to, you know, your program and to your success, essentially? Yeah, and how do you go about getting sponsors? So that's a really good question. So basically, sponsorship is incredibly important to what we do as race car drivers. It's a, what allows us to go to the racetrack um, in a lot of cases. And ultimately, um, what I try to do here at FGR when it comes to our sponsors is this is a business at the end of the day, right? NASCAR is big business. So when a company sponsors you and they give you money, um, let's say they give you a dollar, right? They want to know not only how do they get that dollar back in the form of an ROI, but how do they get a dollar and then some so they know it was a good investment. They see their sales go up. They see um, an improvement in their business. Like how did our platform help them as a business? And that's what we built FGR around was being able to show a super attractive ROI to the sponsors we work with. And over the course of the last three or four years, we've been able to put together a program that shows an incredibly attractive ROI and every year our sponsors continue to come back. This was something that I learned along the way, you know, um, for example, Jeff Gordon, you, mm -hmm. I always knew him as driving the DuPont car. You know, but that just meant DuPont sponsored Jeff for 38 races, right? Yeah. From what I'm seeing and learning now, and has it always been this way? Like a, a, a sponsor can sponsor one race. So a sponsor can sponsor one race. They can sponsor the whole season. As, as NASCAR is today, there's very few full season sponsors. So... I think the closest uh, sponsor there is to a full season sponsor is FedEx. I think they have about 30 races with Denny Hamlin. That's, Don't a, that's the Jordan car, right? 
So Denny Hamlin owns a team with Michael Jordan, ah. but the car that FedEx is on is uh, Joe Gibbs Racing Car. Okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's a lot of different sponsors that they'll pick up four races, five races, one race, 10 races. And it really depends on one, what their marketing budget is, uh, that they're able to spend in the sport. And then two, what their goals are out of the partnership, right? There's some that are location based, like they really, uh, they really want to focus on the Florida area. So they sponsor the two races at Daytona and they sponsor Homestead, right? So they do a three race package that way. Or you're a company based in the Northeast. Maybe you'll do New Hampshire, Dover, Pocono, things like that. Or you're a company that's trying to expand into somewhere. They're trying to expand into a new region. Um, so some of them are location-based. Others are they'll sponsor some of the bigger races. So like Daytona is our biggest race of the year. It gets the, the largest TV viewership, things like that. So there's a lot of uh, companies that want to just do Daytona in a lot of cases. Um, and then... Each race we do, it all, they all kind of have their own value um, in, in their own way, right? So uh, you can do different activation, different things, depending on which track you go to. You can do at-track activation. You could do spots at the midway, which is like where all the NASCAR fans go to buy merchandise and see new displays, things like that. So you can buy a spot there. So there's a lot of different stuff you can do as a sponsor um, to activate within NASCAR. And that really um, dictates how many races they'll sponsor. The original question was, how did you get sponsors? I see uh, you got your Bucked Up Energy Buckshot right there. So they Bucked Up has been a sponsor for your program for two years now? So Bucked Up's on their third year, fourth year with us, actually. Talk about it. How, um, how'd they get on board? How's it going? Where is it going? So it's going great. Bucked Up has been... Uh, growing a ton i actually had to bring my buckshot here today it's uh it, it's getting a little late here so i'm i'm uh i'm gonna open it up here in a second what is that um so it looks like a bullet from here so it Shot, actually shotgun it, shell. So, yeah. so it does look like a shotgun shell that's that's why it's called buckshot but basically it's a it's a high-powered energy shot so i'm gonna um Drink it here in a few minutes, and uh, I'll be able to get through this podcast no problem. And you probably won't sleep tonight, and you're ready for another podcast at 6 a.m. Absolutely, absolutely. Five hours just isn't enough. So do you take one of those before every race? So I drink a bucked up before every race, and uh, I have these, honestly, a pretty fair amount. Anytime I, I really need to get something done. So would bucked up... Were they involved in NASCAR before sponsoring with you? Talk us through it. Like, how did you start working with them how did they how does the sponsorship work do they sponsor all your races no so bucked up sponsors a handful of races a year and uh we were the ones that first brought them into nascar we brought them in in 2020 during covid actually so it was really cool to do that there and then they've just grown so much as a company from 2020 to now it's really impressive what they've been able to do and i've been really happy to be able to grow with them so it's uh really cool to have them in nascar Let's, uh, I want to get into, like, outside of driving, like, what's your race preparation, um, you know, any, any type of training that you guys do specifically to get your, to get your body, like, used to dr driving? Yeah, because when you're driving, I mean, it's like 120 degrees inside that car. Try 145. For average, like, average NASCAR races, how long? Like, in the Cup Series. So, in the Cup Series, they're probably about four hours. So, four hours. 150 degrees in a car. 
150 in the car, but you got like a cooling suit. How's that work? So, no matter how you cut it, it is hot. What's the body tip? What's like? Yeah, what's so your body do they monitor? Do they monitor? Do you have like vital monitoring? So there are some uh, drivers who do. I I personally do not, but you can wear your Apple um, Watch, right? So I I don't even like sitting in saunas. Like that sounds crazy for me. So it is it is unbelievable. So. I can tell you this. I don't know my body temp, but I do know that I will lose between six and 12 pounds in water weight over the course of a race. Wow. So in four hours, you're losing, let's just say, 10 pounds. Sweat it all out. Yeah. That's so is hyd- so hydration, are, is there some type of hydration that you, got, that you have during the race, or you only get that at pit stops? Or? So they'll... They'll give you a water bottle on pit stops occasionally, but you can only drink it really under caution. You can't do it while you're green. There's just so you, ain't, you can't wear like a camel pack and you know. Take a so sip. some drivers do. I I don't. Oh, but it's but it's allowed. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um. But I uh, I'm I'm usually so focused on racing and what I'm doing when we're under green flag that I don't even think about getting a drink. You might need like a camel pack with some buckshot in it. So, <laughs> bucked up actually has a product specifically for hydration that I take all the time. I have it in the okay. car with me when I'm racing and um, it, it really does a really good job. Do you uh, got awesome. one of those cooling suits? So I do actually and they work pretty well when they work. Um, I've had them go bad a couple of times. and so probably uh, even hotter. <laughs> oh, it's, it's terrible because when they go bad. It's another layer. It's another layer it's, on you. Not only is it another layer. It's, it's weight, right? putting hot water across oh, your body. What? Um, so, and the only times I've had it go bad, I don't, I don't know if it's coincidence or I don't know if the the hottest races of the year, they go bad. Uh, So like, sounds like torture. Uh, so it, it, 200 miles an hour, you look (laughs) just sweating, just hot. Yeah. Oh, it, it it cooks you. It cooks you. You got, you got like a sweatband or, you know, headband. How do you keep the sweat out of your eyes? So, um, that's valid question. Honestly. I've never gotten sweat in my eyes. I've never really thought about it. But honestly, the more I think about it, I think it's so hot that it, your sweat it evaporates. evaporates. <laughs> like you're not like you're not it, dripping it, sweat. It just evaporates. It's just well, that's yeah, because because you, your helmet goes up to right above over your eyebrows, right? So technically, your helmet's just absorbing. Yeah, and and I mean, in a lot of cases, when I think about it, like when I played basketball or lacrosse or things like that, I would sweat a lot, but. When you play basketball indoors, at most it's seventy-five degrees. Yeah, it's air conditioned. So you can see the sweat pouring down because you're doing a lot of work. You're you're exerting energy to make yourself sweat, but it's not evaporating quickly. Where when it's a it's double that in the race car, I think it just Full uh, humidity all that. Only you know this. We've never been in a two hundred mile an hour car ripping around the for track four hours. for four hours, let alone twenty minutes or five minutes. What's but you've watched a lot of races. What's what's tougher on the body? Being a spectator sitting in the sun for four hours just cooking or doing that? So I think it certainly depends on the race. But no, no. It's it's definitely harder in the car. But the one thing I will say But you get the wind at least though, no? No, no. So He's in a suit. Well, not only that, there's very little airflow in the car. Don't you guys have like those ducks that yeah, throw, they they don't do very much. Nah? No, no. I um, thought that was the whole point of that, so that it throws air into you. So it is it is the point, but they still don't do very much. So, from an engineering standpoint, 
the least amount of uh, airflow you can get in the car creates the better the, the, better the better aerodynamics air. are, the better the downforce is. Right. So the engineers do everything they can to not, not air have air, air in the air car. Air out. Yeah. But from a humane purpose, they need to give you air because... Yeah, no, like we, we have air. Like it's, it's not like we're like gasping for air in there, but like when you think about going 200 miles an hour, like... A lot of people think like, oh, like there's a ton of wind in there. There's really not. Like it's it's pretty stationary air um, for going that fast. So so b- back to that. I mean, obviously, you know, me and Brian off the street, we're not gonna like our bodies probably can't handle that. No matter how good of a, you know, conditioning we think we have. What uh, are there physical conditioning programs that the drivers are you know required to do, or is it that mostly set on your own? Oh, so. I don't want to say it's required because uh, it, it really is um, a lot of individual drivers will do it on their own, but you really need to do it as a driver. I, I know very few drivers who don't train and can get into these types of situations and uh, deal with that type of heat. Like I do a lot of heat room training. I do a lot of cycling, a lot of running, a lot of uh, cognitive drills, a lot of weightlifting and things like that as well. So, In the heat. Oh, yeah. So, um, like, when we'd go cycle and things like that, um, during the summer in North Carolina, you'll pick the hottest time of the day. So, you'll go out at 2.30, 3 o'clock and bang out. So, you're planning for that. Yeah. You want to accustom your body to it. Oh, so the more time you can spend in the heat, the better. Um, because you just have to get you're used to it in the car. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, on the other side... Um you know, last few years, especially now with the IR um, simulators and stuff like that. How important is that on the training side as well? Oh, simulation is uh, incredibly important. So I have I have an iRacing simulator at my house. I spend a lot of time on that. I do races every week. I get on there with some of the other drivers and work on things. And then the manufacturers also have their own simulator. So the biggest difference between uh, the simulator I have at my house versus the manufacturer's sim, uh, there's a lot of differences. But the biggest one is that the manufacturer's sims actually simulate my car on the racetrack, oh, right? Wow. So every single component on my NASCAR car is measured to thousands of inches, and it's put into the simulator. So we can make changes in the simulator that emulate real life, and we can build a setup off of that. We can build changes off of it where the iRacing simulator at my house, it, it helps with my racecraft, but it doesn't help us build a setup to go to the racetrack and be better. Interesting. And that's also a difference between a bottom tier team versus a top tier team. The quality of the simulator available to the drivers is completely different. Oh, right? absolutely. I mean, when I was with mid to bottom tier teams, we would never get simulator time. Um, I, didn't, I didn't even see the inside of a manufacturer simulator till my third year in Xfinity. Because of access or yeah just just access i mean these simulators cost a tremendous amount of money to build and make i mean it is unbelievable it's, it's like a custom it's like custom yeah i mean the, is the, this a, is a simulator at the manufacturer or is that your team's garage no so the manufacturers own the sims so toyota owns them so Ford you go to toyota so toyota or ford I've, I've i've never been in the chevy one but basically the Toyota simulator and the Ford simulator, they give the top teams a lot of access and the um, mid to bottom tier teams 
get minimal access or in a lot of cases, no access just because there isn't enough time in the day, right? So the manufacturers give the top teams the most access because they're their best opportunity to go to the racetrack and win. So, and I'm assuming the teams have to pay to get in these, sit on these simulators. Yeah. I, I don't think so. No, I built into their budget. I don't think so. I, I, I don't, I honestly don't know how all of that works, but I don't, I don't think, but you've sat I, in them. Manufacturer yeah. simulator. Yeah, so I've I've been in the Ford simulator. I've been in the Toyota simulator. And when you're in a simulator, are you like fully suited up or? So yeah, and in, in some cases you're fully suited up. Um, I mean, it's incredibly immersive. The simulator moves. It's got a screen completely around you. It's uh, the inside of the simulator looks exactly like the way your car is going to look in real life. Wow. So like every switch is in the same place. It's it's identical. Okay. So speaking of simulators, I actually had the opportunity to go to one of these top tier facilities. I won't mention it just because I don't even know if I was able to even walk near this room, but the simulators are top secret at some of these race teams, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, at the end of the day, all of these race teams, manufacturers, whoever it is, they spend a lot of money on R&D and they spend a lot of money on engineering and they don't want their secrets walking out the door, right? Um, like I remember... I was walking in that direction and I got grabbed by the shoulder like you can't go there. I was like, "What? Why?" They're like, "No, nah, that room is like literally top secret. Like only the driver and team owners allowed in that room." Yeah, so there's there's a lot of stuff that the general public and other race teams um are, are not allowed to see or know about what a lot of these teams are doing just because it's proprietary information, right? It's uh stuff that they spent money on R&D to figure out and uh they had a lot of smart people spend a lot of time to figure out how to get an advantage. And they don't want everybody else to know it. Now, I, I know in like different types of racing, there's always like someone's always cheating or someone's always trying to do something to, you know, get that advantage. Is there have there been teams in NASCAR caught cheating or oh, all the time, what, all the time. What, what, what types of how often does it happen? All the time. Um, how, yeah. Like what is the type of cheating that happens? I mean, I feel like there's a story every couple of weeks about a team having an issue in tech or getting caught. Um, and ultimately sometimes they're blatantly cheating. Other times they're just trying to get as much as they can. And because at the end of the day, we're all trying to compete for hundreds of seconds, right? Um, very, very small amounts of time. So if you're able to get um, a little bit of an advantage by getting into the gray area, if you will, or if you're able to get, some of this stuff through tech um it's an advantage and if you do get caught what are the types of penalties here like has a team ever been told like you can't even race this race like is that how so in tech before the race if they catch something in tech before the race they will make you fix it so you have to solve the problem or fix what you did before you go out there i don't ever remember a time where a team wasn't allowed to race um Maybe they had to pull out a backup car, but I don't even remember that happening. Usually they can fix it. Um, but I do remember times where in post-race inspection, teams are caught cheating. And then there's usually massive fines by NASCAR, different things like that, depending on what it was. Um, and and when and that's where I think I was trying to get at is what types of cheating are there? Is it like something with suspension, like downforce stuff? I know there's like minimum heights. The car can't be super low, shit like that. So everything you can think of. <laughs> um, anywhere that you could potentially get an advantage, teams have tried to manipulate. Right. Right. Um, I, I mean, on the cup car, there was a story earlier this year of uh, 
Hendrick Motorsports, um, basically, when you buy on the new cup car, when you buy parts from NASCAR, you're not allowed to change the parts at all. You're not allowed to make your own. It has to be exactly the way they sold it to you. And they modified their um, hood louvers to, I don't know if it was an advantage or not. I'm, I don't know why you would modify them. It wasn't an advantage, so I'm sure it was. But um, they got in a bunch of trouble. They got a giant fine. They got driver points docked. And then it ended up going to... Uh, like you can you can fight it right like arbitration yeah yeah like so they 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 fought it um and they challenge it yeah so they challenged it ended up going to a uh like a a, a kind of like a court panel like, like a an arbitrator yeah probably. absolutely and uh they got the driver points back but they still had to pay the fine so i mean there's just a lot of different things that nascar can impose penalties on it could be a monetary fine it could be a points penalty in some cases, they could take your win away um, if you won the race and ended up cheating. So there, there's a lot of different things they can wow. do. Okay. I actually meant to ask this earlier when we were talking about how the high temps sitting in the race car, you know, up to 150 degrees. Is it like sitting in a hot sauna, 150 degrees for four hours? Is that comparable? So it's a little bit different than a sauna. So a sauna. That's like the dry heat. Yeah, so a sauna is super humid. There's a lot of moisture in there where in the car, it's it's a dry heat. So I think uh, the difference between a sauna and the race car is you're drenched in sweat in a sauna um, because there's so much humidity and moisture in there, right? Where I feel like in the race car, it's a much drier heat, so it dries you out. You get dehydrated quicker in a drier heat than you do in the humidity in my opinion that's why i feel like a lot of the training we do as well is in heat rooms not necessarily saunas so you can still turn the heat up to 150 degrees but it's not uh it's, it's on a steam room you ever work out in the heat room no nah, i heard people that like that hot yoga i never tried yeah, is, that, is that is that a heat room where well, they do hot thing. yoga so so hot, hot yoga basically is a heat room yeah I, I, I don't think they turn it up as high as they do for us um all right but so it's let's say it's i'm in a hot yoga room and I four turned hours. it up to 140 degrees. Me sitting in that room for four hours, is that what you're dealing with? I'm trying to just get so, a comparison here. So, all right. I can't imagine. If, if, if you're looking, like torture. <laughs> if, if you're looking for a comparison, turn the heat up in the hot yoga room to 140 degrees. Yeah. Put a stationary bike in there. And, and, and then ride. play, ride on the bike. But while you're riding on the bike, play like chess or something like that because you still have to Think. mentally be focused and be able to think well, even better put put an eye racing simulator in a hot yoga room at 140 and that's pretty much what you're dealing yeah, with and sit, sitting there for four or five hours yeah yeah that don't sound it's pretty intense yeah that sounds <laughs> crazy because from us we just like oh you guys are just turning left yeah man i got <laughs> i got a crx without ac and i'm like i don't want to take that <laughs> thing out when it's 85 degrees 90 degrees out. that's hot <laughs> i mean that's like and a lot of people ask me the difference between like Formula One type racing and NASCAR from the physicality standpoint. And that's honestly probably the biggest difference is they don't have to deal with the type of heat that we deal with um, because they, don't, they have an open cockpit. So the G-forces they deal with are a lot higher than ours, but the heat is nowhere near. And Let's they're talk not racing about for as long either. Yeah, typically not. The races no. aren't that long. No, and they pass way less cars. F1, NASCAR... Joe, talk about it. Uh, so 
I love both of them. I, I, I really love F1, but I really feel like NASCAR drivers um, are like we have to be the most versatile drivers uh, in pretty much any series, in my opinion. We go from super speedways like Daytona Talladega to the dirt at Bristol to road courses to short tracks to intermediate tracks. Like we have to do so many different things and master so many different disciplines of racing where formula one, like they go to different tracks, but they're all pretty similar styles of racing. Now also just so people know NASCAR, you guys still transmission wise, it's not automatic trans. It's, it's a, Manual, yeah. Mat- gated manual trans, right? Yeah, so the cup cars now have a se- sequential shifter. Ours oh, wow. is still a gated manual yeah, okay. in Xfinity. So with a clutch, everything. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I didn't even know that. Interesting. I didn't know that they went to sequentials. So So, funny enough, when they first switched to it, there was, uh, there was a few guys um, that ended up blowing up motors just because they're used to, yeah, they would downshift when they meant to upshift just because it's like what they were used to their entire career. Um, so like the, the first year they did it, some, some of the guys had issues coming off pit road and things like that just because it's what they're used to. They're not used to right. Um, like when you're going from second to third coming back, they're used to going from second to third on, on the shifter. Now, something like that also in the transmissions, can you guys change gear ratio, shit like that? Or oh, yeah, more like- yeah. So you, you can change all of that and like, there's a lot of post-race reports that we go through and post-race debriefs where we talk about how how the motor pulled from second to third gear on restarts, third to fourth gear, different things like that, so that when we go back to a racetrack either later in the year or the next year, you can just keep getting better Get and better keep, data and exactly, so you know exactly. how to set the car up. And uh, what, how many gears in the transmissions? Uh, four. Four speeds? Okay. And what about the sequential? Same thing? Uh, so the sequentials are five. Okay. Interesting. And what's the what's the motors like redline? Um, so we redline right about nine thousand RPMs. That's a V eight, nine thousand. Oh yeah, so oh it's, yeah. It's screaming. I mean, my my shift point in in, in most cases is between uh, eighty four hundred and eighty eight hundred. So when you guys are full throttle on, like, you know, going at it, the motor is at what, like, just under nine thousand. Uh yeah, like right around eight thousand RPM. Oh wow! Once we're racing, yeah. We're talking. You might not know the answer to this. Maybe you do. Number one team, let's say in NASCAR Xfinity. Let's say top. The team. number one guy. Yeah, number one guy. Number one. So um, it's a tough question because some teams are better at some tracks. Some teams are better at others. But like the top teams in Xfinity, right? You have Junior Motorsports, you have Joe Gibbs Racing, you have Stuart Haas, you have RCR, you have Colleague. Um, and your team is? So I am with Joe Gibbs Racing part-time this year, and I'm with RSS Racing for the rest of the races. So if we're talking, you know, not specifically your team, but a top-tier team in general, everyone on that team is getting paid, mm-hmm. right? From the driver to the pit crew, everyone's getting paid, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's a job. So you don't have to be specific on this, but is this the same for every team? Who is the highest paid on the team? Is it the driver? 
So it really depends on the situation because kind of back to what we were talking about before, driver salaries vary so much depending on the contract you have as a driver, not just the team you're with, but the contract that you're able to negotiate as a driver and the value that you're able to bring to the team as a driver through sponsorship, through performance, different things like that. So in most cases, I do want to say it's the driver, but it, uh, it definitely varies. And this is just for aspiring people who, you know, potentially want to have or to be in NASCAR as a career, whether it be, you know, from the back end business side or to be on track as, you know, crew chief or pit crew. Um, besides the driver, like who would be the next highest paid? Uh, probably the crew chief. So, but there, like, there's a lot of guys behind the scenes that really bring the whole weekend together. Like, there's there's spotters, there's pit crew guys, there's engineers, there's um, car chiefs, crew chiefs. Uh, then on the business side, you have the marketing guys, you have PR, you have team presidents. Like, there's so much that really goes into bringing the race car to the racetrack every week. Would you say it's 50-50 on a team? Like, half the team is on the track and half the team is in the office knowing how important sponsorship is? So it certainly depends on the size of the race team. Um, so some of the bigger teams, they have a lot of guys that don't go to the racetrack. They have a lot of guys in the shop that work on the cars that just stay in the shop. In the shop, They don't go to the racetrack. But a lot of the mid-tier teams, the smaller teams, the same guys that are in the shop are the same guys at the racetrack with you. Um, so it, it really varies uh, pretty drastically. Joe, we spoke a lot about cars and racing. I do know, you know, obviously you love racing. I do know you have a crazy sneaker collection and might love sneakers more than you love cars. I don't know. You tell me. So I definitely do not love sneakers more than cars, but it is a close second. Um, so I've built a pretty crazy sneaker collection over the years. Um, I've, I've been into sneakers since I was in middle school. So um, kind of being able to find some of my grails is, is a lot of fun. I know you buy, you sell, you trade. At the most, how many pairs of sneakers did you have in your, you know, own at the most? So at the peak of my sneaker collection, yeah, I, the I, peak. I, I, I had over 200 pairs. Over 200 pairs. Um, All heat or just, you know, a little bit of everything? A little bit of everything. And then I, I sold about 120 of them and really consolidated it to some crazy grails. So for a while... Um, Let's get into that. So at 200 pairs... Can you put a number to what the value of 200 pairs in your collection was? So I honestly can't put a value to it, but I, I will say this. So when I first started being able to get into sneakers pretty heavily um, back in 2019, I realized that I'm going to go broke really quickly with this. Uh, it, it, it's a hobby, but also an addiction. Um, so I figured out how to kind of turn it into a business. So I buy, I sell, I trade, um, and I treat some of them like investments, like investing in the stock market and uh, different things like that. So I've actually been able to make money in sneakers over the years. Um, even uh, some of the years when racing wasn't really paying the bills, I was able to uh, pay the bills with sneakers. So, um, I mean, there, there was years where my sneaker collection, uh, it, it profited me forty, fifty thousand $50,000 a year. You made more money selling sneakers than racing. There, there, there was a year or two where that was the case, legitimately, yeah. That's what's up. What I mean, would you say right now is your, like, what's your grail right now? 
So your number one pair. My number one pair that I own, or my number one pair that I'm trying to get. That, that you, you own. own so far. That I own, probably my Back to the Future Air Mags. And Have for those wore? who don't know, those are the sneakers that Marty McFly wore in Back to the Future, Auto Lace. Nike actually brought them to life. Oh yeah, oh, and those it's, sneakers it's so awesome. are. Forty thousand dollars? Yeah, they're they're not cheap. It was uh, that was probably the craziest uh, grail I found. I, so well, we don't need to know how much you paid, but if we went on StockX right now, how much would a size eleven be going for? Like forty grand, yeah, forty fifty grand. And you you, you wore, wore yours. So I actually wore them to NASCAR production day a couple weeks ago. It was pretty cool. You creased them. I I did crease them. Yeah. You're so. a G. Gotta wear your so kicks. You gotta, wear them. gotta wear your kicks. This is the same guy who's wearing Christian Dior Jordan ones right now that are, you know, about seven thousand dollars. And he's he was showing Spread us earlier. He's there. like, look how creased up these things are. <laughs> I well, just spilled ketchup on them. All right, I did not spill ketchup on. I did not spill ketchup on. But I'm a huge proponent of wearing your sneakers. So I have some of them who like that are are investments, but other ones like. I really enjoy sneakers. I enjoy the culture. I enjoy, like, the hunt for finding some of these grails. So um, I, I have to wear them. And that's the cool thing about the sneaker hobby, you know. Um, even though you wear these sneakers, you could technically at times resell them to get your money back or if not um, make more money on them. Yeah. yeah. I cannot tell you how many times I've bought brand new sneakers, worn them, and sold them for more than I bought them for. Yeah, that's, that's the awesome part about this. I mean, you're the same guy. I met up with them one time for lunch and he popped the trunk open and he's like, dude, I just got three pairs of Louis Vuitton Air Force Ones. I'm like, bro, like, I s it was hard finding pictures of these things, let alone. Oh, dude. It, <laughs> you it have was, them in your size, in your trunk. They are the hardest shoes to find, I swear. Because, so, they're super rare as is, but basically Louis Vuitton gave them to their VIP clients, right? So they're, Highest VIP clientele had the option to buy these sneakers. Are you are you part of that VIP clientele? I am clientele? not. Oh. I am most certainly not. Okay. So this gets interesting. But <laughs> basically, because of that, a lot of um, the highest Louis Vuitton VIP clients were women. So their feet happen to be smaller. So trying to find a size 12 in these is nearly impossible in some of these colors. So it's been a fun uh, it's been a fun hunt for me. I found about three or four of the seven that um, I'm, I'm trying to find, but it's it's been a lot of fun. What has been the hardest pair for you to get? Like, because obviously there's StockX, there's consignment shops, but there's some pairs out there like you just can't find them. Like, what pair did you get that was just you know? Tell us of how how hard it was to get. So there's been a few that I've been looking for for years. And uh, the Air Mags were one of them. I remember, so I had about 220 pairs of sneakers, and I sold over 100 of them. Um, so it was a sale slash trade. So I was looking for the What the Dunks at the time. They're from 2002, I believe. It's like a combination of 30 different Dunks. They only made 300 pair. It was a promotional pair for a movie at the time. So uh, I'd never found a size 11 and a half um request boutique in charlotte where i find a lot of my sneakers they uh they actually ended up getting an 11 and a half so instantly i'm like I, I have to get these so um i brought them 120 pairs of sneakers i got the what the dunks and then i got the rest in cash to go buy a pair of air mags um, i'm just doing some rough math here 100 pairs 
roughly, I mean, retail on a pair of sneakers these days is like 150 bucks. So let's just say you were, you didn't have general release sneakers. So let's just say 200 pair, $200 a pair. You roughly traded in hundred pairs, got 20,000 bucks, if not a whole lot more. So it was, and it you got one pair that, yeah. of shoes and some cash. So I got the what the dunks, and then I Which got are what ten thousand dollars sneakers. Yeah, so but they're between like ten and twenty thousand. Yeah, um, and then light, light, light difference. Ten thousand, <laughs> twenty thousand. I don't know. I'm gonna crease them anyway. So I, I actually did wear up the sneaker con, um, but light flex. I was. Uh, I was trying to find a pair of Air Mags at the time, but like, I can't um, drop over ten thousand dollars on a pair. Like, I don't, I don't just have that in my bank account, right? So I had. But you to, do have a hundred pairs that are worth that exactly. Yeah. So I'm like, all right, so I have to sell them now so that when the opportunity comes so you along, did to buy have a pair 10, of Air Mags. twenty thousand dollars in the bank account <laughs> after that. So af- after that, I did so that when I, I finally came across a pair of Air Mags, I was able to buy them. Um, Shout out sold out in Jersey City for finding those for me. That was awesome. Um, I like sneakers. Hugo likes sneakers. You know, like the, it's not too crazy for us, but I know a general person who you know wears like forty, fifty dollars pairs of sneakers right now is like, what the fuck? Well, so it's a different game. You know, it's, it's a different culture. Oh, it, and you it's fun. It's it, it's a huge hobby of mine. And uh, you meet good people along the way. You exactly. Know some it, people collect cards. Some people collect video games, comic books. We like sneakers. Yeah. Absolutely. And anytime you could turn your passion into a business as well. Yeah. Um, it doesn't hurt to make I, mean, I, don't, I don't have to tell you that, Brian. You know. So That's, that's why I could, I could definitely relate here. But, you know, I've never worn a pair well worth over 5000 bucks. But I'll tell you, every time I've seen Joe, uh, yeah, he's always wearing sneakers well worth over 1000 bucks. <laughs> NASCAR, if you guys haven't already uh, given this man his accolade for the uh, freshest collection, he rightfully deserves it. Yeah, I I have yet to see another NASCAR driver that has a collection anywhere near what That's mine what's is. What's up, man? That's cool. We got to get you on that Jordan team. Yeah, what's up, Jordan? <laughs> what? I mean, honestly, I'd be I'd be super stoked if Michael would just come sign my 1985 breads. Hey, man. He might, he That's might right. That. You do have that pair, right? The yeah. original Jordan so, ones. Not the lost and founds. No, no. Like I, I have the the original ones from 1985. Right. So that that was something I was doing that was fun. Um, I was tr- so the Jordan One bread is one of my favorite sneakers of all time. So I'm like, I want to get one from every year they came out. So they were 1985, 1994, 2001, 2011, 2013, 2016, and then the patent breads that just came out. Um, and I was able to get my 1985 ones are in really good condition and uh, wood box. No, so trying to find the uh, I the craziest thing, the cardboard is more rare than the sneakers. So people who have them brand new in the box, like it, it's a thirty thousand dollars sneaker all day. Um, it, so I, mine, I I got for a steal. I felt like they're in really good condition. Don't have the box, slightly used, but. For the history, I'm like, how how can I not get these? Like, I, I got them for under two grand. No way. Oh, it, it, so that was probably one of the best sneaker finds I've ever had. That's one of the best deals you got. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's absolutely. almost like now that we when we put this out, you're gonna have to keep that pair on you at the track at all times. 
Just in case. MJ just in shows case. Up, so he does go to the races. Oh, right? he, he goes to the races all the time. So right. I, I I won't lie. They've they've been they've been traveling the racetrack with me last. Oh, you, you already been doing a little that. bit. I've I've been trying. I've, the opportunity. You, you know, can't happen, you can't you just can't make sleep. that happen. You can't just walk up to the trailer. I mean, you're, you're a driver. You got full access. No, no, I know, I know, I know. But it's uh. You gotta, we'll put the, you, gotta make, you gotta put the driver pride to the side <laughs> and fanboy out a little bit. I mean, it's Michael uh, Jordan, bro. It's, no, it's true. It is, it is Michael Jordan. I just saw actually today on uh, Golden Auctions, they're auctioning off Carl Malone's Dream Team collection. He has every single jersey and pair of shoes from the 1994 Dream Team, and they're auctioning on all. Carl Malone owns the whole collection, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And his Jordan's jersey right now is over a million bucks. That's crazy. Meanwhile, every That's other player crazy. is like, you know, anywhere from like 10,000 to 100,000. <laughs> Jordan's jersey, million bucks. I, you got to put the driver pride to the side. You got to walk up to the man like, yo, I drive. I just want to say what's up to Jordan real quick. And you got to whip out the sneaker. Everybody's like, all right, let him in. No, no. I, what I other mean, guy walks in here with it? I just, I just want pair. him signed for me. Like, yeah, it's like a really cool, cool deal. Like, I, like, I don't even. And a picture. Come on, you got to yeah, get the picture yeah, too. No, of course, of course. And then uh, if he happens to sign you to the team, why not? <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't be mad about it. <laughs> Yo, that might be the that might be the icebreaker. You know, you got it. You got to come in your suit, but wear a Jordan jersey on top, holding the sneaker. Like, yo, <laughs> security, I got to come through. Check this out, bro. She's total fanboy. Yeah, I, I got a fanboy out. You got to do it. Yeah, gotta I gotta do it. Security got to let you through at that point. <laughs> Try it at the next race. You know he's at. Uh, I'm going to have to. You should do it, man. That's totally worth it. You might you might even make the headlines there. Like, Joe Graff Jr., Xfinity driver, approaches yeah, def yeah, you definitely the GOAT. Have, you know, Oh my gosh! Gotta have your photographer. I mean, I, I I love wearing crazy kicks to the racetrack. Like I don't know if you guys saw at Talladega. I wore uh I wore the big red boot out there to driver intros and everything. Yeah, I've seen that. I cool. mean, man, I, I'm not even brave enough to put them things on, knowing some people can't even take them off. So I was a little bit worried about that. I'm like, you know, if I put these on, I can't take them off for the race. Uh, this is gonna be a big problem. Um, but all, all eyes must have been on you when people have been seeing you. How, how, what was that attention like? Was it like, yo, I look crazy in these, in these boots? Oh, yeah, you, you look absolutely ridiculous, right? Like, there's, there's no way around that. They're, they're cool and everything, but you look ridiculous. Were you, were you sweating knowing you look ridiculous, or are you sweating knowing, like, yeah, no, I did that? I think it's one of those deals. Um, you, uh, you wear them kind of knowing you look ridiculous, but it's cool at the same time. It gets attention. Speaking of the boots, I took them off for Talladega, and I haven't seen them since. And I really – so I, I, guess my, <laughs> I guess my brother took, took them from Talladega. And I was – What you got? I'd honestly be mad about it, but he brought me Wendy's. So I, I, I can't even be mad. Right on time, I can't too. even be mad. Oh, I was starving. I was starving. I mean – Oh, get down with these nuggets! I, I can't believe you you wore those things. Oh, I I well, can't believe I wore them either. But well, it looks like you don't own them anymore. Cause uh, <laughs> <laughs> honestly, I'd be really disappointed about it. They, like he they, he took my shoes, but he brought me a biggie bag. So I guess we're even now. So on that note, I think it's right about time we wrap up the podcast. Cause looks like it's dinner. I think it's dinner time. So, Joe, we appreciate you coming out. For anyone that wants to follow you on social media, could you plug your uh, socials? Yeah, so Joe Graff Jr. on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram as well. Um, and uh, super happy to be out here, guys. Thank you. No, I appreciate it. Always a pleasure meeting up with you. Hopefully we get to catch you at one of your races this year. And if you guys like this episode, Eat, Sleep, Race podcast, make sure you like, comment, subscribe on whatever platform you're watching on. And also share. 
and also most importantly share drop a comment and if you want to follow us on our socials at hugo esr at brian esr catch you on the next one